I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle. For the last two years, the Chronicle has been investigating the Hunter's Point Shipyard, one of the nation's largest Superfund cleanup sites. Last year, we produced an incredible story about how many police officers stationed at the site say they weren't told that the site was still dangerous. Anecdotes included officers who had new shoes essentially dissolve in their lockers after running in the area. Others told us they frequently spotted nearby cleanup workers in full-on hazmat gear as officers jogged by in only workout clothes. The cleanup contractor Tetratech EC has been in the crosshairs. Last year, two former Tetratech supervisors were sentenced to federal prison after admitting to falsifying records. The Navy and U.S. EPA say they've found wider patterns of likely fraud or manipulation in radioactivity measurements across the site. And now, new news. The cops are taking their issues to court. They have sued Tetratech Inc., the parent company, as well as a pair of subsidiaries. Nearly 400 former and current officers and staff members and 150 of their spouses and partners say they were exposed to unsafe materials that led to chronic health problems and at least two deaths. Joining me today is investigative reporters Cynthia Dizikas and Jason Fagoni, the journalists who have been investigating the shipyard cleanup. Welcome, guys. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, you first wrote about these officers in 2018, and your story at the time started with an anecdote about Nelson Lum. Can you tell us about Nelson and what happened to him? Nelson Lum was part of the first wave of police officers to be transferred to the shipyard. So he started working there in 1997. He was a member of the tactical division, and he worked there every day for a year and then he was transferred out of the shipyard. But for a while after that, he had to return regularly um, because he was a SWAT team trainer and the SWAT team was stationed there. So he would train the SWAT team and he would take police academy recruits on, on trainings. And so over a period of eight years, he spent thousands of hours at the shipyard. And he told us that it was an odd experience. Uh, for instance, he used to take these uh, police academy recruits on training runs around the base. And it's this abandoned base. And more than once, he was surprised when he would be sort of out running uh, with these guys in their T-shirts and shorts. And he would pass um, Navy contractors who are out, outfitted in like hazmat gear, um, you know, full body sort of Tyvek uniforms like they were dealing with something that was uh, pretty dangerous. And, you know, and he said, you know, I was always I was always surprised because I'm in my shorts and here are these guys walking around in space. It's like, what's wrong with this picture? And, um, you know, he he and the other cops were told that there was nothing to worry about told by the city and Navy that it was safe. So he just sort of put it out of his mind. He ended up retiring in 2005. And I think he didn't think much about the shipyard after that. But um, in 2011, his wife noticed a lump on his neck. And she urged him to go to the doctor. And it turned out to be cancerous. He had thyroid cancer. And so when he got his diagnosis, his mind jumped back um, to those memories of the shipyard and seeing those guys in spacesuits. And he started to wonder if he had been exposed to something that might have caused his cancer years later. And that's a pretty common situation, you know, that guys who work there, uh, men and women who work there, uh, talk to us about. They, you know, we interviewed dozens of them. And um, there are some that do have health problems now, and uh, they're worried that there might be a link to their time at the shipyard. And those who aren't sick, who worked at the shipyard, 
uh, are worried that they may get sick sometime in the future. Sure, absolutely. And, and, and that piece mentions that his doctor says it's really almost impossible to know if that's what he might have gotten cancer anyway. And that's sure, the I mean, difficulty of these these stories. Right. Police officers are, uh, you know, they they go into all kinds of situations and they are exposed to all sorts of things. So it's, it's very difficult just medically, scientifically, it's very difficult to draw a direct line uh, between an exposure to an environmental contaminant and uh, disease that might occur years later. So, yeah, that's very difficult. So maybe we should take a step back right now. And Cynthia, can you explain why the shipyard is so contaminated and what is in it? Yes. So I actually, um, when I was thinking of how to encapsulate this, I thought Jason actually encapsulated this really well in his first tweet on the Building 606 story that we did, where he said, here's one of the craziest San Francisco housing stories I've heard, and it begins with an atomic bomb. And I feel like that couldn't say it more perfectly. All my tweets are very good. And, and he was not, that is true. But oh, they're all extremely good. They're all extremely good. But he wasn't talking about a metaphorical atom no. bomb. He was talking about literally yes, an atom bomb. Yes. So the shipyard has long been used for industrial operations that have left the land tainted by sort of your normal slew of hazardous materials, uh, including heavy metals and PCBs. But in the 1950s, it was originally the Center for Nuclear Research, where the U.S. government literally dragged dozens of ships that had been horribly contaminated with radioactivity during atomic bomb tests in the South Pacific. And so they brought all of these ships back to San Francisco, which a lot of people don't know that history. And at the time, the Navy believed that they could actually clean these ships by sandblasting them and scrubbing them which was really misinformed. And all they ended up doing was spreading that radioactivity around the shipyard. There are other con contaminants there as well, right? Exactly. So um, there was a big lawsuit. Was it back in the 1990s? There was a, um, a company out there that had um, been illegally dumping hazardous waste. So there's, um, there's a lot of um, heavy metals, lead, there's PCBs. There are a lot of other... Um, contaminants of concern is what they call them out there, in addition to many radioactive isotopes that in and of themselves would be um, things you would want to avoid. So one of the reasons there's so much city interest in, in this site is that it's a bunch of land that nothing really exists on right now. And everybody knows, probably in the country, maybe in the world, San Francisco needs housing probably more than any place on Earth. But so how did the cops come to be there before any homes or any development or anything else was planned? Yeah, that's a big part of it. And it's it's kind of a strange story. So uh, 1996, um, the city under Mayor Willie Brown was looking for a place to station a bunch of its specialized police units. And these were units um, like the SWAT team, the bomb squad, the canine unit. Um, there was a unit of, uh, of cops who rode light dirt bikes, Honda motorcycles, a very prestigious unit um, uh, within the department and the citywide crime lab and, and so on. And these are units that tend to have a lot of equipment and need a lot of space to sprawl out and train. And the city looked at the shipyard and said, hey, there's a lot of empty space here, right? Because uh, it's basically this derelict Navy base uh, that nobody was touching or using because it contained unknown amounts of contamination. And also uh, the rent was pretty cheap, uh, again, because it's a waste site. And so in 97, uh, the city started transferring these units there uh, uh, as, as a full-time office, a full-time station. 
And it also used the shipyard as a training base for cops all across the city. So cops who weren't there every day were uh, going there uh, on a pretty regular basis to train. And so all of a sudden, in, uh, in essence, the shipyard went from this kind of um, derelict place with very little human activity to a place where you had hundreds of uh, police employees, uh, both cops and civilian employees who were working there every day. And so you had, you had you know, police employees riding around a Superfund site on motorcycles and canine officers training their dogs in, in fields and bomb squad officers would blow up explosives and tests and mounds of dirt. And, you know, you had cops getting exercised by going on runs through the site in T-shirts and shorts. Things that one might argue you don't want to do in a contaminated spot necessarily. But these cops say they really didn't know what was going on with the soil there and the status of the cleanup. Well, at the t- I mean, at the time, and still today, actually, I, but at the time, the, the site was a complete unknown. It actually, the, the amount of, and level of contamination there was a total question mark because they had not gone in and actually begun to test it. So, um, so the city, the Navy, anyone else uh, really had no idea uh, what was there. So now the cops have filed a lawsuit or some cops who have been stationed there or are stationed there. What? Are they um, what are they alleging in their lawsuit, Cynthia? So they're basically alleging that Tetra Tech and a pair of subsidiaries exposed them and their spouses and partners to unsafe levels of hazardous materials while they were out there doing everything that Jason just described. Well, wait, before you go on, explain why the spouses are involved in this, too. Right. Exactly. So that's a good question. Um, So the cops would be out there and we talked to many of them who would describe they would be out there training in the dust and dirt. And they would pick all of that up on their clothes, on their uniforms, the cars, their cars that they had driven to get out to the shipyard would often be caked in mud. And then they would bring all of that, whatever was in that mud, back home, back to their children, to their spouses, to their partners. And um, and, and they're alleging that that then exposed them to unsafe levels of hazardous materials. And they're saying that this caused problems in the immediate time period that they were there, that they had headaches and rashes. Many of them spoke to us about um, those concerns immediately. But they're also saying that that exposure led to long-term problems. So uh, lung cancer, blood disorders, adult onset asthma, and at least two deaths. And um, just going back a little bit to, um, you described some of this in the beginning, but um, to get in a sense of what Tetra Tech was doing out there. So you had Tetra Tech EC, which is, as you mentioned, a subsidiary of Tetra Tech Inc. And they were the Navy's main cleanup contractor at the shipyard. So they were responsible out there for moving around huge amounts of contaminated soil, trucking it all over the site while the cops were out there moving around that space at the same time, and then also testing the soil. And one of these testing yards where they would lay out tons of soil that was potentially contaminated was literally right next door to the police officers. And um, and so that was Tetra Tech EC's role. Now, the cops are also alleging that another Tetra Tech entity, Tetra Tech EM, was involved in, in basically recklessly clearing the way for them to be moved out to the shipyard in the first place. And that's because a predecessor company of Tetra Tech EM was involved in writing up the documents, essentially saying it was safe to lease the building. And as part of that review, they omitted that building 606 sat on top of the site of a laundry that had been used for years to wash radioactive clothing. So something that could 
potentially contaminate the pipes in the building, the surrounding grounds. And instead of acknowledging that in these leasing documents, they said that the laundry had no history of the storage or use of hazardous materials and that no radiological hazards were expected. So because of all of that, because of all those various ways that Tetratech and its entities were involved at the shipyard and in the police officers being moved out there, they're saying that this this rests on Tetratech's shoulders. And the lawsuit doesn't specify how much the officers are seeking, but some have told us that they basically want to ensure that it's enough to take care of any medical coverage should problems arise in the future. I'm speaking with Jason Fagoni and Cynthia Dizikas about their investigation into the Hunter Point Naval Shipyard cleanup. I want to ask you guys about what the cleanup contractor Tetratech EC thinks about this lawsuit after this. I'm back with Jason Fagoni and Cynthia Dizikas, the reporters who have been looking into the cleanup of the Hunter's Point Naval Shipyard and specifically, most recently, reporting on the lawsuit of more than 400 police officers and staffers who have sued the site's cleanup contractor over what they say is a lackluster cleanup. So, guys, I know you speak with officials from Tetratech quite a bit. Uh, what is their reaction to this lawsuit? So all three Tetratech entities that are named in this lawsuit have said that the allegations are without merit, that they are baseless, and they've said that the work that they did was done properly and to the standards specified in their Navy contracts. The, the company has also previously blamed any issues that have come up on rogue employees, saying that the problems did not extend beyond them. And they point, in the case of Building 606, to a recent radiation survey that the city health department performed there, um, which the health department has said confirmed that there's no evidence of health hazards at the building. Now, experts we have spoke to have also pointed out that this was only a partial survey and it didn't rely on more rigorous sampling methods that are considered the industry standard. Yeah, and I would also say that um, you know the the attorney we talked to the attorney who's representing the cops who said that you know th these kinds of arguments kind of defy common sense in the sense that um, you know the shipyard is a very windy place and wind picks up contamination and blows it around. So even if you're testing something today, it doesn't mean that that there couldn't have been an exposure in the past. So given all of the issues, uh, the 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 two cleanup contractors going to prison. Uh, there there have been investigations launched around this. The city is taking a new look. What is the current status of the cleanup of the shipyard? It's kind of in limbo. Uh, last year, the EPA and uh, the Navy and other agencies essentially decided to, uh, to ignore years worth of radiation measurements that have been performed in the shipyard, deciding that they, uh, they weren't reliable and they needed to be redone. And um, the Navy began a process of figuring out how to retest the site. And so that's that's in progress. And until there are new uh, test results that everyone agrees are reliable, then the cleanup can't go forward. And why is it so important to the city that this move forward right away? Well, so you mentioned this earlier, but um, housing. I mean, we are famously one of the worst places in the country, you know, when it comes to housing availability. And the shipyard represents this massive opportunity. I mean, it is literally 500 acres of vacant land. And the city has long hoped to turn that land into its biggest development project in a century. Thousands of housing units, shops, restaurants, and parks. 
but it just needs to be cleaned up first. Yeah, it, it sounds like an easy thing to say, not such an easy thing for the city to do. Exactly. So this isn't the only site that's a potential massive housing development site in the inner Bay Area or in, in San Francisco, really, that has contamination issues. We also have Treasure Island. You've reported that that site is known as a, quote, shadow Superfund site, which uh, really upsets the developer. Um, but but it's true. You, you've you found documents. What what does that mean, actually? So this story was based on documents that were released earlier this year by an environmental watchdog group. Uh, it got these documents through the Freedom of Information Act, and they're pretty remarkable. They show that in the 1990s, the EPA was trying to figure out uh, how dangerous Treasure Island was, how contaminated it might be. Um, from the Navy activities that had, had been performed there during its time as an active Navy base. And the EPA has this system that it uses to evaluate um, contaminated sites, and it's called the hazard ranking score. Basically, EPA runs through a checklist of contamination or likely contamination at a particular site, and then it uses a formula to come up with this bottom line number, which is the hazard score. It's a, on a 100-point scale. And this is kind of a measurement uh, of a rough measurement, but a measurement of how risky the site is to humans and the environment. And any site that scores above 28.5 on this hazard scale can be named to uh, the national priorities list, which is commonly known as the Superfund list. Um, and if a site is named to that list, it means it's sort of by definition one of the most contaminated sites in the country and needs to get special attention and funding to clean it up. Uh, with the EPA in charge. And in 1991, Treasure Island went through this process, this EPA process. They, they, they did a hazard score and they found that it scored 51.78 on this, on this hazard scale, which is almost twice what it needed to score to be added to the Superfund list. So it, it qualified to be uh, on the national priorities list, to be uh, uh, known as a Superfund site. But it was never added to the list. And we don't really know why. No one no one that we talked to knows why. We just know that it wasn't added to the list. And so the cleanup of Treasure Island ended up being run by a less powerful agency, a state agency, uh, instead of the gold standard agency for these things, which is the EPA. And that's why the environmental uh, watchdog group called Treasure Island a shadow Superfund site. Mm. And are these two sites, they both have issues with radiological contamination, correct? Are they connected? Is the history connected in the two of them? They are, yes. Um, both operated as naval bases during the 1950s. Both harbored ships contaminated with radioactivity. But at Hunter's Point, the additional work that was done with radioactivity there, the um, potential contamination, that is all much more documented. However, there is evidence of related radiological activities at Treasure Island that have left behind hundreds of radioactive objects that cleanup crews are still unearthing as of this year. And I, I I know the answer to this, but maybe all of our readers don't. You guys plan to do more on this in 2020. Is that right? What does 2020 look yeah, like? Yeah, we've been you? we've been looking more closely at Treasure Island lately. So, and uh, since 2006, in the north and northwest part of Treasure Island, contractors have found really large numbers of radioactive objects, essentially little pieces of radioactive metal and debris left behind uh, by the Navy and never removed, and you know, contractors have found 1,296 individual radioactive objects. Uh, 
uh, some as recently as last month, and some of them have been found close to homes that are that are occupied. Um, the San Francisco Bayview newspaper has written stories about these radioactive objects, but it's not widely appreciated, uh, I don't think, just how many of these things have been found and what it means. So we're looking at that. We're trying to understand where these objects come from uh, and to map where they've been found and what the possible health effects are and uh, what it all means for the people who live there and the future of the island. And I'm sure there are a lot of people with experience on Treasure Island or who live on Treasure Island that may know things. How do they get a hold of you if, uh, if, if they want to? They can reach out to us directly by email or call us. Our emails are on the website, but mine is C-D-I-Z-I-K-E-S at sfchronicle.com. Mine is jason.fagoni at sfchronicle.com. That's F as in Frank, A-G-O-N-E. That's great. Well, thanks, guys, so much for your work on this. It's uh, I, I, I see the stacks of documents that you're going through, and it's not easy work, and you've really synthesized for it uh, this for us a lot. So thanks a lot for being here. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you. I'd like to thank investigative reporters Cynthia Dizekis and Jason Fagoni for being with me today, to King Kaufman and Karen Creighton for producing this episode, and you for listening. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.